welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest won five USPSA national championships in 2022, along with a U.S. and European IDPA championship. Since 2010, he has won 16 national championships. He trails only Rob Latham as the winningest shooter in USPSA history. Everybody, join me in welcoming Nils Jonathan. Thanks for having me on yet again. Yeah, thanks for being back. And I sound really important when you say it like that, like second behind Rob Latham. That's those are pretty big shoes to fill, so I'll take it. Yeah, and I was just counting them up right before we went on, and I think he has like 29 national championships. It's crazy number. In USPSA, I think that's correct. I, I yeah. don't know if that factors all of his like IDPA and IPSIC wins, uh, but Robbie's been around for a couple of years, and he's literally win. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and now, now, now it looks like you're back on your computer. Uh, I am actually using my computer as a kickstand for my iPad. So we're going to try this one more time. I have all the technologies. I actually know what I'm doing, but uh, yeah, it is not uh, going smoothly. So we roll with it just like everything. We roll with it. Ex exactly. All right. So we were... <laughs> When you when you decided to leave, you were just saying how Rob's been, you know, in the business for a couple of days. Oh yeah. goodness! <laughs> no, I mean Robbie's obviously a legend. I grew up watching Robbie shoot on film, and then we ended up actually moving to Robbie's home club, unbeknownst to us. So I shot I've shot with Robbie for over twenty years, uh, and I've only been competing for twenty one. So it's been a privilege kind of watching him over the years and learning from him. So to be even in the same sentences, Rob Latham is pretty neat for me. Okay. He's also a tall guy. He is. I think he's six two, six three. He's about my height. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty tall. Because we've had the last time you're on, we had that conversation about uh watching the production national our production super squad back in 2020 and everybody was like you know like six foot five it seemed like right i mean we got we got what me mason lane um bill strader uh jj Ricaza. i mean he's shorter than us but like he's still i think six foot six one like he's a pretty big guy uh so yeah you're right they're pretty Max, people. Jacob, yeah, yeah. everybody's well, Jacob, tall. Jacob, Jacob's just a little guy. <laughs> but he makes right. up for it in fighting spirit. Yeah, he's not a, not a bad shooter, for sure. No, Jacob's amazing. Now, we, we did all the personal questions the last time you were here. Um, so we'll skip all that. Before we get into the Canic stuff, so last year was was pretty magical for you. Yeah, last year uh, is the best year I've ever had in the competitive shooting world. I ended up winning a total of, I think, six national championships and a world speed shooting championship in one year, which I've come close to that. I think my record before that was either four or five national championships or like majors. Um, but yeah, six and one, definitely 
outdid anything I did in the past and might be a record for the industry as well. Yeah, I don't, I, when I was looking earlier, um, I don't believe anybody when I was looking has won four USPSA national championships. I mean, pistol, I'm not talking right. multi-gun in one season. Right. Uh, I think the only people that you might be able to say would come close would be obviously Robbie could have done it. Uh, Dave Savigny could have done it because both of those guys have shot so many different divisions through the years. And most of those, you know, he'll bounce between divisions in the same year, uh, much like I've done. Um, so I think if there were, there was anybody that would beat that record, it would have been either Robbie or Dave Savigny. Right. Yeah. And, and, they definitely didn't, <laughs> but well, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That. So is do you feel 2022 is repeatable? It's going to be tough. Uh, I'm going to give it the old college try, uh, and I've still got stuff I, I'm working on because um, I didn't shoot perfect last year. Like, I didn't shoot a single match where I walked away thinking, like, this is the best I'll, I'll ever shoot. There's always something I can improve, um, so I'm still working on – a bunch of different things but from a, a performance outcome standpoint from a final result it, it will be tough to beat and i've got my work cut out for me because now i got a big target on my back again yes yeah as the defending champion you're definitely going to have a big target um and it's interesting that you say that that you know you never walked away feeling like you shot your best because watching the super squads this year um, at Talladega, both the men's and the women's, the women's that, that final stage there, there was three of them within like 12 to 15 points of each other. It was literally a toss up. But when mm -hmm. you guys went into the final stage at carry optics nationals, you had like a, you had like a 40 point lead for, so carry optics was the largest margin with the exception of single stack nationals last year, the largest margin that I won by. Um, so I knew like going into the last day that I had kind of a leg up on everyone and just kind of held and maintained that lead going into the final stage. Um, so I don't want to say I shot extra conservative, but I definitely knew that if I was to lose, it would have been me giving it away, not them taking it from me. And that's, that's something really important to, to recognize when you're in that position, because it's very easy to get caught up in the moment and get excited and do something, I don't know, just for the sake of doing it and then fail. And then you end up giving points away to your competition and making them very happy, which you don't want to do in the match. Right. Now that brings up, um, back, when we talked last time, it was almost two years ago, spring of uh, 21, and at the time, you were reading a book. I've got it written down here. The Mindful Athlete. And you were getting into the mental aspect of shooting. What you were describing about, you know, staying in the moment, staying focused, not getting excited, all of that. Did any of that come from that stuff that you read and what you've been looking into? For sure. Yeah, and there are several other good books I could recommend, but that's a solid book. Um, probably a better book, if you're just getting into it, would be The Inner Game of Tennis. Uh, it's a very thin book, not intimidating at all. I definitely recommend anybody that's interested in that aspect of sports performance to read The Inner Game of Tennis also. 
We actually talked about that book after, because I don't know if you remember, but when we stopped recording, we stayed on and talked for quite a while afterward. And you mentioned that book. I actually bought it, so I've read it. What is it about that book that you like? Um, I just think it does a good job at explaining the difference between your performance and kind of the what you're naturally inclined to to speak to, like about yourself, like your your inner thoughts or your um, I'm not very good at describing that type of thing, but the conversation you have with yourself and how important that is, not from a mind yourself or, or like a false expectation standpoint, but analyzing what you say and using it to your benefit rather than letting it tear you down. So have you read with winning in mind by Lanny Basham? I actually have not read that book, but I've heard it's very good. Okay, because I'm I'm wondering if it's very similar. Then it almost sounds like it's got some similarities. It talks about it's a lot about self-image and not tearing down that self-image and keeping it where it needs to be at a higher level. Yeah, I, you could say self-image. I would say it would be really useful when you're practicing, uh, when you mess something up, using the mess up to learn from rather than get frustrated with it. Um, I think as a training tool there, it's very useful. And then also there are things you can do in a high pressure, pressure situation that are very useful. Now you obviously, I mean, you're at the top of your game again, that, that's last year was very unique at this point. I know you've posted some stuff on Instagram, like you were, you just showed a video where you're merging positions and um, working on the steps you take, how you take them and stuff like that. But how much, how much do you still have to learn? Do you feel I should, let me rephrase that. How much do you still feel you have to learn about shooting? Do you still feel like there's a lot more for you to learn? Or do you feel you have more to gain in the mental uh, performance aspect of shooting? I think I can learn, you know, in, in every aspect of the, the shooting, whether it's the like core fundamentals and being more accurate, more consistent from a, like a shot placement standpoint from a movement standpoint or efficiency standpoint, uh, which is what I was working on in that video. Um, because I'm kind of, or has have historically been the shooter that'll run to a position, shoot as good a points as I can, and then run to the next position. And most of the time that pays dividends, but sometimes it's a benefit to shoot a target on a move or force a position, two positions into one position from a time standpoint. So I'm, I've been working on that, trying to get better on the movement aspect. Um, stage breakdown, I've usually been, I've been pretty good at that for a while, just from the the sheer number of major matches I've shot and stages I built at local club. Um, and then obviously the mental side of it, you can always get better. So I think in all three of those areas, I can still improve. There's plenty of stuff to work on. And so those guys, you, 
You mentioned recently that this episode is brought to you by Laser App, L-A-S-R App. They specialize in laser dry fire training, super convenient and not to mention super cheap. You can use anything for a dry fire target and any device with a camera for capturing the laser hits. There's even a 30-day money-back guarantee. And it's veteran-owned, Semper Fi, Ben. You can utilize multiple targets and multiple cameras. It can be as complex or as simple as your heart desires. They even sell steel challenge banners. They sell CERT guns and the CERT AR Bolt so you can practice indoors with your AR for free. There's a newsletter and a forum you can join. When you sign up for the newsletter, they'll send you a free six-part video series. Check out their website. It's a smorgasbord of items to make you better faster. Use the affiliate link on our website or at the bottom of our podcast notes and on YouTube for a 15% discount. Also, use our coupon code in the store for 10% off of other items not necessarily covered by our affiliate link. Thanks for your support, everyone. Without your support, this podcast would be difficult to maintain. You know, the Carry Optics Nationals win was a proud one because of the amount of competition that was there. And you told me um, in a private message that you compared it to, I believe it was your 2014 limited win because there was so much competition at that one as well. So what of the things we just talked about that you feel, you know, you can still work on and get better at, which of those things do you think gives you a better chance of beating those top level guys at another like carry optics nationals where you're going to have 10 guys who could win it? I mean, so 2014 limited nationals was the first aside from single stack was the first standalone nationals I remember competing in. Um, so we had, you know, four or 500 shooters all in one division. We had all of the best shooters across all divisions, all shooting limited, just like we had back in 2022 for carry optics. Um, but with, you know, 60, 70 grandmasters and like legitimately 10 to 12 people that could actually win the match. Uh, some people you knew of, some people you didn't. Um, like it's it's definitely exciting to be able to hold a high level of competition and performance at like a, a stressful situation like that. Okay. But as as far as like which of those aspects will help me deal with that, I mean, again, all three. Like there's not just one. Like the the physical side of it, as far as movement, um, like the the pure skill, shot placement, and obviously the mental side. Uh, and I've heard you talk about points and accuracy now a few times. Um, when I was watching the super squad, I, well, when I was hanging around the super squad, watching you guys shoot at carry optics nationals, you were, I don't remember if you'd already shot or you were still waiting to shoot, but you were back by the picnic table and you were talking to somebody and you made the comment. It was like, once you shoot, you know, five Charlie's, you basically shot a miss at this point. And you were, I believe that's what you said. Something like that. Um, It'll depend on the stage was, and the hit factor, but yeah. 
Right. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at, you know, a Charlie. And then I also heard you say on Tom Castro's podcast, comparing minor and major power factor, you know, if you shoot 10 Charlies at like limited nationals mm -hmm. and a, a guy shooting actual limited major power factor shoots 15, you're still down five points. So right. you seem to put a good bit of emphasis on accuracy. Well, and in a situation like that, it might change how aggressive you'll be able to attack a stage. Like if they're shooting a bunch of targets on the move and dropping points on those targets, shooting minor, you don't have that luxury. So you either need to somehow magically be better than they are and shoot better points on the move or find a way to shoot them from a, more of a stable platform to ensure better points. So you might sacrifice a slight amount of speed doing that, but if you can avoid dropping a bunch of points, it'll come out in your favor in the long run. Okay. Je Going into 2023, do you feel that you learned more from limited nationals or carry optics nationals? So in the last year and a half, I've learned far more with regards to shooting a red dot than I have anything to do with iron sights. So I've shot iron sights for 21 years now. And it's only been in the last, and I've shot red dots for about six or seven years. Um, it's only been in the last year and a half, maybe two years, I actually figured out what I was doing wrong with the red dot and why I didn't like it and how to shoot it correctly. So I think between the two, I learned way more in from the optics side, because I've always been with iron sights, that's been my thing. But the red dot, I've always struggled. It's always felt slow. I always felt like I was, you know, double confirming my sight picture and I want to be shooting irons rather than the stupid red dot. So I think the last year and a half, I figured out what I was doing wrong, how to correct it. And that's made a huge like jump in my optic shooting for sure. How did you go about doing that? How'd you figure it out? So it's kind of an issue that people have that I've figured this out on my own, right? Not on my own. Sometimes the lessons you learn on your own, even if you heard it before, once you figure it out for yourself is uh, more of a sticky point for your brain. Um, but no, for iron sights, you bring the gun up, you find the target, you transition your focus back to the sights enough to get a good enough sight picture, fire the shot, and then repeat the process. So my natural inclination, like my subconscious process is to make that focus shift. Okay. And I've known that, right? Like that's, that's nothing new to me. When I switched to my red dot, I would unconsciously do the exact same thing. And the result, the symptom for that was red dots are slow. Yes, I can be accurate with it, but like, I'd rather be shooting iron sights because it just works better for me. And what I was doing was I was making that subconscious focus shift between the target and the sights, target and the sights. Mm. Except when you have a red dot, that's a complete waste of time, right? <laughs> right. With the red dot, you have the ability to leave your focus downrange on the targets and not make that focus shift. 
But my problem was I would make that focus shift so fast, like it wasn't perceptible to me right mm. away. And I think maybe my eyes have gotten a little slower as I'm 33 years old now, like getting up there. <laughs> um, but like to make that focus shift, it actually cost me like noticeable time now, like I'm aware of it. So I became painfully aware of the fact that I was shifting my focus from the gun for no reason and then back to the targets and making that focus shift, just wasting time. So once I recognized that, I could force myself to leave my focus on the Back to the cell phone? Back to the cell phone, yeah. Wide angle gave it away. So <laughs> yeah. I guess let's, let's pick back up where we left off. So once yeah. I figured that out, um, it opened up a whole new world with the red dot. Um, my speed increased, my accuracy increased, my consistency with the red dot increased. And every once in a while, I would find myself drifting back to kind of like that subconscious uh, focus shift. And I just mm. remind myself, leave your, leave your focus on the target. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, just go back to what you know you're supposed to do. So that was my big breakthrough, like last year and a half uh, with the red dot, for sure. Now, what was, when was the aha moment? Was it like during a match or during training Ooh, or? That's a good question. It would have been during a practice session uh, where it like really solidified that like, okay, you're messing this up big time. Uh, and then I just worked on that nonstop until I figured it out. And like I said, like that was an eye-opening moment. Like I knew that I, you know, had like this kind of proclivity to, to do that, but I didn't know it was that bad. Oh, wow. Okay. But you got to remember, I've shot iron sights for over 20 years, right? Like, that's my thing. Like, that's what I do subconsciously. And I'm good at it. So, like, this red dot thing, like, it's a it's a mental shift for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, it's not unsimilar to me coming from more of a long range precision shooting background to now I'm shooting speed. You always want to go back to that, get that perfect shot. And it's like, no, no, no. You, you just need to be in this big square. You're okay. Shoot. Right. Perfect is the yeah. enemy of good, of good enough. Yeah. Do you see yourself, con <laughs> do you see yourself continuing down the road of more mental management type stuff? I mean, I'm always going to work on it. Um, like every match is different. Every match has its own set of challenges. Um, and somebody who was on their mental game the previous match, it might be a totally different situation than that. So that's a that's a never ending cycle. Um, like that that that'll never stop. Um, and that's something. I mean, I've been forced to deal with it just because of the high level of competitors I've had at my local club, and then the sheer number of of major championships I shoot. Um, so it, it gets frustrating getting your ass kicked and you don't want that to happen. So you figure out, you figure it out. Yeah. Which is why you have a target on your back because everybody's tired of getting their ass kicked by Nils. <laughs> like somebody's got to stop this guy. This is ridiculous. Right. Well, I mean, multi-gun. Uh, so multi-gun nationals last year was the only USPSA nationals that I shot and didn't win. I didn't even podium. Um, I think Nate Sanchez won. I think that's how you say his last name. But Nate won the match. Um, I think Daniel Horner was second. And then I got edged out by 
don't know if it was Tim Ackley or another one of the like predominantly intensive three gun shooters. And then I was right behind them in fourth. Um, but I also didn't put a ton of time into three gun because my pistol schedule is so stacked. So I'm not terribly disappointed with that, but it still hurts to get crushed by people you know you can beat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, and we had a, a conversation, a very brief one at SHOT Show about that, about World Shoot, where you qualified with Standard, you know, four years ago, and you really haven't put any time or effort into it, so you weren't necessarily as prepared as you would have liked to have been. So you didn't seem like you were, at, or, you know, based on our conversation again, you didn't feel like you were as prepared as you could have been because it's not something you've shot in four years. Yeah. Um, unfortunately I haven't had the opportunity to put a lot of time into the 40 cal, um, which is what I shot in Thailand for the world championship. Uh, but, uh, for Khalil who won the, the standard division and for bro who came in second, like I can't take anything away from those two kids. They're both out of the Philippines and they both shot absolutely awesome so i can't take away anything from either of those uh and looking at the standings it, i mean the shooters out of the philippines seem to really make a splash at thailand yeah they did extremely well they've been i don't know what they're putting in the water over in uh, the philippines but they're doing something right i think jj's taking some u.s steroids over there and these guys are <laughs> uh, J jj's all natural what are you talking about <laughs> No, I'm just saying he's helping his fellow countrymen get better. <laughs> no, they, they both shot very, very well. Um, I, if I had uh, a gun that worked 100% and been practiced up for it, I would have been able to compete with them. But the speeds that they were laying down and like the frequency, the frequency in which they connected uh, and had just incredible runs um, with the amount of practice I was able to put in, I just couldn't keep up with them. Now, how did you, what did you think of the stages over there? So I've shot two world shoots in the past. Uh, the first being 2014 in uh, Prosper, Florida, and the other being 2017 in France. And I think between the three I've shot now total, this is probably the most simplistic world shoot from, a, from the standpoint mm -hmm. of uh, stage breakdown. So there were very few ways to, I don't want to say game the stage, but there weren't that many options. Like there were some difficult shots, there were some difficult moving targets, um, but the stages were pretty much run here, shoot this, maybe shoot this target on the move and repeat. So there weren't a ton of options that I saw in the stages at this, this world shoot in Thailand. Okay. I feel like with Ipsic, it, they really kind of level the playing field a little bit with making you stay within the... This episode is brought to you by Gun Butter. Gun Butter is a premier lubricant for your rifle or pistol. They have grease for parts that need it, like lugs on a bolt gun. Man, do I love a bolt gun. It's a proprietary blend that they won't even trademark so as not to have to give away their trade secrets. Check out the video I put up on YouTube. Uh, look for another one coming soon. I even ran into Rick Powers, an RO at Carry Optics Nationals. He switched to it 
after listening to our podcast with Mason Litchfield. He loves it. Rob Epifania uses and loves it. Frank Shu uses it and loves it. Use Casual Shooter 20 and save 20% on checkout. The boundaries. And it really adds to either one, you've got to be quicker than everybody else, or like you're saying, you've, you've also got to be very accurate in order to gain any type of advantage. Yeah, I mean, accuracy definitely plays a role. Uh, I think it would be harder to place high in an IPSC major championship running minor uh, compared to USPSA, just because generally their shots are more difficult. They have like shots that are stretched out farther, um, which might not make sense to some people, but it's really easy to shoot shoot two Charlies on a 35-yard target. Um, You know, it's a lot easier to shoot alphas when it's, you know, 10 yards away. So, right. like, the stages play a huge factor there. Um, but, yeah, I guess they level the playing field a little bit. They also incorporate a lot more short and medium courses, where in the U.S. we're used to, like, more long, drawn-out, high-round-count stages. And out of every six stages, they only have one 32-round field course because they run the 3-2-1 format in IPSC. Do you have any preference? Do you prefer theirs over the USPA, USPSA style, or does it matter? I mean, I guess if I had to pick one, I'd pick USPSA, but that's just because that's what I'm used to shooting more. Um, it's Everyone has to shoot the same stages. Everyone has the same shooting challenges presented to them. So I think from a competitive equality standpoint, it's the same. Um, but I'm more used to the USPSA format. Well, I know in 2021, uh, Area 8, Keanu was um... – trying to do the three, two, one format. Uh, I, I enjoyed the way it was. Uh, I enjoyed what he was trying to do. Um, but I know he got some negative feedback as well. People thought that the round count was too low for a major match, but. Well, when primers are $200 a thousand, (laughs) right. But now Now, you can't please everybody. You can't please everybody. Somebody's going to, have a problem or complain. That's all right. And now how did you and Jessica enjoy Thailand? Thailand was an experience. I'll just, I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Okay. I saw, um, I just had Mason and Kay on and, uh-huh. you know, they, they went and, uh, went to like a, a zoo or a, whatever it was, uh, and saw some elephants. They went to uh, Thai, um, Muay Thai fight, stuff like that. Did you guys get out and do any of that type of stuff? So Jessica and I did make it to an elephant sanctuary, which was very, very cool. Um, to watch, you know, what's the equivalent of, you know, a Ford F-150 just wandering through the forest and disappearing <laughs> after 20 yards. Like, And we are back in business. Boom. Boom. Here we Thanks. are. All right. So you were saying you, uh, you guys had the opportunity to go to a sanctuary, see a large animal disappear into the woods. Yeah, the elephants or- were really cool. Um, traffic driving on the left side of the road is an experience. Um, I didn't do it at all. Mm. Jessica did. Uh, so that was uh, not bad, but definitely different than driving in the United States. Um, we had some good Thai food, but Jessica's analogy is uh, in the U.S., every place has a hamburger. Not every place has a good hamburger. 
So to find a really good hamburger in the U.S. takes some work. Same thing is true for Thai food in Thailand. Now, did you guys eat any of the street food? Very little. Okay. I heard that's what, got, that's what I heard got people over there was the street food. Yeah. We had our own issues, and Jessica may have had some uh, some water poisoning or food poisoning uh, the day after the world shoot ended, um, mm. which is coincidentally our first vacation day because we stayed a few extra days in Thailand since we're there. You know, it's a 26 hour flight. Might as well make the most of it. Absolutely. Now, um, were you guys scheduled to have your off day of shooting on the same day? Yeah, we actually shared the same schedule, same shooting zones. Um, and our, our break day was actually day one. So we had a longer um, preparation period than most. And then it was like one day after another, all five days of shooting after that. I saw some people shot some matches before the match actually shot. Did you guys mm -hmm. do anything like that? We did. We shot uh, one of their pre-matches or, or pre-world shoot matches at a different range. Um, and that was good just because I hadn't shot my 40 cal in like four and a half years. So to put a couple Ooh. rounds through it before actually... Uh, competing in the world championship was useful. Um, I went from being a terrible shooter to uh, not as terrible shooter by the time stage one of the world shoot came around. Oh, Lord. It's <laughs> a good warm-up. All right. Yeah. That, now, did you have an opportunity then to – did you confirm your zero before you left, or did you get a chance to do anything with that? Do you have adjustable sights on your 40? I do. Uh, yeah, so okay. it's, uh, it's the same 2011 Combat Master uh, that Terran Tactical did and built for me before um, mm. that I shot at the last World Championship, like four or five years ago, whenever that was, uh, in 2017. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah five um, years So it's ago. the same pistol, same pistol I used then uh, for this year. Uh, but I was running match ammo, uh, which is a shorter overall length, and... I had a couple of hiccups or a couple of jams with the pistol, but I'm sure that was more ammunition than anything else. Uh, but at the World Shoot, that doesn't help anything. But yes, I confirmed my zero before I left and also when I got there, when I actually test-fired the match ammunition. Okay. So you bought ammunition there when you got there? Correct. Yeah, I brought, I brought my own and bought match ammo when I got there. Okay. You never have too much ammo. No, never. I assume that what you brought was a little better than what you bought. Uh, it was similar. It was similar. Uh, I wanted to try and duplicate the match load uh, in case I had to jump between the two. Uh, but you got to remember, I had just flown back from Italy. So all of the preparation I did for the world shoot was in the four days between coming back from the IDPA national or the IDPA European Championship in Italy uh, and flying out four days later to Thailand. So I had four days to, you know, get my ammo situated, load it, proof it, and test functionality with the pistol. Not a lot of time. No, not much at all. How much did the time change affect you? That's a lot of time changes from going West Coast or, you know, Arizona, oh, yeah. Italy back to Arizona, to Thailand. Yeah, at that point, I was all messed up. I didn't know what was going on. 
<laughs> no, there were plenty of nights waking up at 1 a.m. Uh, ready to go. Uh, so, yeah, that's suboptimal mm, for sure. For sure. Terrible. But, yeah, World Shoot was, was interesting. Uh, the first day, uh, it wasn't the worst I've ever shot, but it was it was pretty rough. Um, and then, like, the second, third day, I started kind of getting the hang of the 40 cal with a different recoil impulse and figuring it out. Um, and then I think by day four, I actually won a couple stages, and, you know, I was getting back into the swing of things, but by that time, it was too late. Okay. Speaking of, of recoil, now, when you first started shooting the Canic, it was the original TP9, the TP9 SFX. SFX. Right. When the Rival came out, um, it seemed much more balanced than the SFX. I get, you know, I don't know if it was just the two-tenths of an inch off the barrel. I can't imagine that was it. Um, there had to be some other factors at play. But now they're coming out with the steel version. Um, obviously, each one, like I felt the recoil was different with the Rival, the polymer version. Now with the steel version, I'm sure you've shot all three. How much more does the recoil soften or even just change with the steel version? It's a pretty significant change. Um you can control the polymer gun perfectly well, uh, but you have to have yeah. you have to have a solid grip. You have to, you know, manually control that recoil um, with the extra weight. So it's an extra eleven and a half to twelve ounces of weight in the frame for the new Rival S, which is the steel frame, compared to the original SFX Rival. Um, so it's a twenty nine ounce for the polymer frame, forty one point seven ounces for the steel frame. So it's a significant bump in frame weight. And the first thing you notice is how much softer the recoil feels. It's a it's a much more subdued recoil impulse in the steel frame rival. So it does a lot of the work for you and you don't have to be as aggressive with your grip. Which means if you work the grip as effectively as you would with the polymer gun, the steel frame gun is going to shoot better. Okay do you think do you think that obviously you did very well with a polymer gun even against all the guys shooting steel frame pistols as it was it did all do right you, <laughs> do you feel like the rival s is just gonna bump you up that much more in competitiveness I mean, like I said, it's it makes the shooting softer. The recoil impulse is softer. Um, it's not all rainbows and unicorns, though. There's always a trade-off, right? Right. Um, so you have the extra weight in the frame, but that also means you have to draw the gun with extra weight. You have to transition the gun with extra weight. So while right. on target, at a static piece of paper or steel, like, it will feel softer, and it will probably be easier to be more accurate just because of the extra weight you have to deal with the negative factors too. So there's a give and take with the steel frame and the polymer frame. Um, obviously, more weight has been a very popular trend in the competition world, like USPSA and IDPA and IPSC. Um, but even though Canik now has a gun that's just as heavy as anybody else and we could make it heavier if we wanted, um, 
there's still a give and take. There's still a cost benefit analysis that goes into it. And, and that was the reason I was asking is I'm like, there are advantages and disadvantages. Do you feel like, I feel like you're, you probably don't have to do much more with your draw with the different steel gun. I mean, I'm sure playing with it at shot show, it felt the same as the rival polymer gun. So I didn't feel like my grip would change really at all. But I, when I was handling it, I was like, there is a, a pretty significant difference in weight. And my first thought was transitions are going to feel completely different. Do you feel like you're going to have to do more work on that to feel comfortable with that? Probably. Um, and that'll be something from a timing standpoint, like transitioning a 30 ounce gun is going to be a very different uh, operation than transitioning a 42 plus ounce gun. So uh, the amount of force it'll take to get it moving and the amount of energy it'll take to slow it down and just working that timing and getting it kind of ingrained in your subconscious. Um, it, it'll take a little bit of work, take a little bit of time. Um, and I'll put it on the clock and see which one's actually better. Because if I shoot the, the polymer frame pistol better, I'll stick with that. But I think I'm hoping and I'm betting on the fact that a little bit extra weight in the gun since points are so important, will be more of a benefit than the lighter weight. Mm. But we'll see. Uh, I'll okay. keep you posted. Yeah, for sure. Because that's the one thing I was... I, my first thought was, man, stopping this thing on target might be a little bit more... Uh, might take a little bit more work. Getting it, it going, I don't feel like is the problem, but it's going to be... It's easy to move that polymer gun you know, around and do what you want. But man, that steel gun, I was like, man, that's gonna that's gonna be take a little bit of effort to get that thing to stop where you want and not overshoot or have it wobble. Yeah, and it'll it'll just be a timing thing I'll have to work on. Um the people with heavier guns uh that have been shooting them for a couple of years know what I'm talking about. Uh if they came from a lighter pistol or a different pistol. Um so yeah, I'll it'll be something I'll work on and I'll I'll keep you updated. With carry optics nationals being in june do you feel like that's enough time to really work out all the kinks we'll see <laughs> okay. i don't want to commit to anything but uh, so my my steel frame rival is in the mail right now so i'll have it i should have it by early next week um so it'll be fun to put it side by side with the original sfx rival and do a, a time comparison because at the end of the day like marketing doesn't matter like it, it, the clock matters, right? So I'll put it on the clock. I'll figure out, I'll, and I'll give it a chance, right? Um, because I want it to do well. So, but if the if the clock doesn't agree with it, you know, the clock doesn't agree with it. Interesting. Okay. Are you going to be? Uh, hopefully, you'll be posting some videos of some of that comparison stuff. Sure. But okay. from a recoil standpoint, the steel frame, by far and away, a softer feeling recoil. When we were doing the R&D stuff last time I was in Turkey about six or seven months ago, um, we have some like factory NATO ball ammo. So it's about 156 power factor. It's damn near major. Um, shooting it through the polymer frame mechanic is a chore. Like you, you know it's, yeah. there's some recoil there. The steel frame with that native ball ammo made it very, very manageable 
So, you know, you throw our bunny fart USPSA loads into it and like, it's going to shoot really, really well. Yeah. I, I had some, um, NATO ammunition that I had picked up. Holy cow. That I was shooting actually out of my SFX before the rival. And that was nuts. So I can only imagine. And it was dirty. Whoo, that stuff is dirty. I forgot how dirty that stuff is. Um, now, we also were talking about Canik coming out with a new optic, which is in their catalog that was at SHOT Show. Mm-hmm. What, what optic are you running right now on your gun? So right now I have the Leopold Delta Point Pro and okay. I've used, and it's the 2.5 MOA. Um, so it's a little bit smaller red dot than some, um, but I've shot that for like six or seven years, kind of since I started shooting red dots in competition. Now they don't have, uh, so I was putting together a, a spreadsheet here of all the different, what I would consider large window red dots mm-hmm. and they're, their window size is not one of the larger ones. Do you, you've never considered going to a, a larger window dot? Uh, I have, um, and I own every red dot in the market. I've got the Sig Romeo 3 Max. I've got the Trijicon SRO. I've got the Hollow Suns, um, a couple other uh, smaller brands, and the Leopold. Um and I always seem to go back to the loophole. Okay. Interesting. That's very interesting. What do you think about large, what do you think about all those large window optics? Do you prefer a, a, a larger, again, like I was saying, the Leopold's not the biggest, so you seem to keep going back to it. Do you prefer like a medium size over a larger window? I don't think it's the the preference to a smaller window because uh, bigger is better, right? Like the the more real estate you have on the glass to find the dot, like the better. And, and if you can keep the red dot in the window and not lose it at all during recoil and tracking, like that's best case scenario. Um, what I like about the Leopold is the clarity of the glass and the the minimal optical distortion that that their optics have so the dot clarity is good the optical clarity is good um like there might be better optics on the market but to have one that's you know good optically and durable i haven't found one that's better than leopold yet not sponsored by leopold by the way (laughs) (laughs) on my on my three gun ar i run a trigicon accupoint one to six so there you go. It's just a hodgepodge of whatever, <laughs> whatever works. Now I also saw that um, you posted a video recently of you loading a bunch of ammo in a short period of time. <laughs> yep, right behind you. And yeah. I noticed that you were. It looked like you were loading copper jacketed bullets. Mm-hmm. Do you always use copper jacketed bullets? Yeah. So. I mean, I've loaded other projectiles, um, but I've run the 124-grain round nose hollow base berries 9mm for, I don't even know how long, years and years. 
Like it's it's been a, a very consistent projectile for me. Uh, and I've, I'm sponsored by Barry's Manufacturing. Um, so they help me out with projectiles when I, when I need them or when times are scarce. I can still get projectiles, which is very nice. Um, but yeah, they've served me well over the years. And I like the 124 because it's like this happy middle ground. I've tried 115s. They feel pretty snappy. I've tried 147s. They feel slow and lethargic. The 124s have just been a real happy medium, a middle ground for me that I've, I've always liked. Uh, I, I feel the same way. I've tried some of the coated bullets, mm -hmm. and I find that it's easy to get in trouble with them because the coating varies so much from manufacturer to manufacturer, the thickness of it from manufacturer sure. to manufacturer that it's, you know, you can't, like, I feel like copper jacketed bullets, you can set your loader at a certain depth and it will always work. It doesn't matter. Right. But with the coated bullets, the different thickness, it's like you got to constantly change the length of the bullet, you know, how far you're really? seeding them. Yeah. Okay. It's been so, a long time since I've run coated bullets. Uh, one thing I've noticed with them is they have a tendency to be a lot smokier. So there's a lot more debris in the air from that coating. Uh, where with either a jacketed or a plated bullet or a coated bullet with like a nickel or the, yeah, they would call it a plated bullet uh, for the berries. Like it's encapsulated, like there's no exposed lead. Uh, there's no powder or lubricant or particulate to, to burn off and get, you know, caught up in this cloud when you pull the trigger. Uh, so I think the, either the plated or the jacketed bullet is going to give you especially in like bad lighting conditions, a better, a better chance. Mm, okay. Yeah, actually. But, but the, um, those bolts you're talking about can be less expensive. I do know that. So I, I wouldn't yeah. fault anybody for running them. No, absolutely not. It's just constantly having, you, you just have to be mindful of what your overall length can be. Because uh, right. We weren't on some of ours, and then I ended up having an out-of-battery detonation with one. Yeah, it's not good. No, and when I finally did all the research and called everybody and talked to everybody, including Canik, um, when I finally talked to the manufacturer of the bullet, I found out exactly what the issues are and why, and I was like, okay, now I know what the problem is. Yeah, it is nice just being able to pour bullets in the hopper and go to town, not have to think about that stuff. Yeah, you not still can burn overall length, but yeah, you're not as stressed about it. So now with with carry optics right around the corner, nationals, we're already just what five months away now. Mm -hmm. it, it'd be like um, because carry yeah. optics nationals is June twenty third, twenty fourth, and twenty fifth. Correct. Correct. So we're only five months away. What what does your training and c competition season look like? Well, so I'm actually looking at a giant calendar uh, right behind the camera. <laughs> and <laughs> so next month I have, so in February, I have the Caribbean Open early February. And then I have the Western States Production Championships at the end of February. And then the only thing I've got budgeted for March at the moment is the Superstition 3-Gun, which is, in this area, the largest 3-Gun championship that we have. 
Uh, and then it starts getting busy in like April, May, June, uh, like Barry Steel Open. There's the NRA show in April. There's the Steel Challenge World mm. Speed Shooting Championship at the end of April. Uh, Area 6 in May. Uh, the Northern, Northern Arizona Championship in May. The Rocky Mountain Regional IDPA Championship also in May. Uh, Area 5 early June. And then Carry Optics Nationals at the end of June. So, like, my match schedule, and that's not all the matches I'll shoot. That's just everything I've got built into my calendar thus far. Um, so, yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going on match-wise. And then training, I just try and work it in between the major match schedule. Wow. that Yeah, that's crazy busy. I, sh I shoot a lot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what, you got a world speed shoot in there, and you or steel shoot, and you've got what was it an NRA show? You said, yeah. So the the National Rifle Association has their annual meeting once a year, um, and I'm not. I, last year it was in Texas. It might be back in yep. Texas this year. I'd have to check the the location of it. Uh, but yeah, Canic and Century have a, a booth at NRA every year, just like we have a booth at Shot Show every year. Okay. So if you're at NRA, swing by the Canic booth and check out our stuff. I'd be happy to you know, walk you through and, and talk about some pistols with you. Does it look very similar to the shot booth? Very similar. Um, and just NRA in general is visually very similar to SHOT Show. Um, but the, the demographic is very different. SHOT Show, it's a lot of dealers and distributors and like people in the industry. NRA is open to the public. So you've got a lot of end users and you got a lot of people that want to come and check out the cool new stuff. So right. I think between the two shows, I prefer NRA better because I can relate to the end user and, and I'll just connect a little bit better with them. So if I had to choose between NRA or SHOT Show, I would choose NRA all day, every day. Yeah, I don't blame you. <clears throat> I was talking to Frank um, at Carry Optics Nationals. We had dinner a few times. And I know that Canic sponsors IDPA matches um, and IPSC. Are there any plans for Canic to do any USPSA like stage sponsors at nationals? I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yes, last year we sponsored um, both the U.S. IDPA nationals. Uh, I think we were a stage sponsor for three or four stages. And then we were also the title sponsor of the IDPA European Championship in Italy. Yeah, I saw that, and that looked like a pretty good production, too. And Canic was everywhere at that match. Yeah, we had a couple of booths set up. We had one for our gun side, and then Canic also does an apparel line called Me Canic. Uh, so they do jackets and shirts and pants and you know, a whole bunch of apparel stuff. So we had a, a booth set up for the gun side and the apparel side. Okay. I know that um, with the factory they're open, uh, opening up there in West Palm Beach, they are building everything that they do in Turkey. So I kind of feel that they, they felt it was cheaper to build a factory in Florida than keep flying you over to Turkey. <laughs> uh, well, so right now for us to do product development uh, for new pistols, 
it is easier most of the time to fly to Turkey and back rather than ship temporary imports in to the U.S. and get permits and all that documentation taken care of. Um, so I'm sure that'll definitely help with the, the R&D process for, for some new stuff. You see yourself spending much time in West Palm Beach because of that? You know, it doesn't sound terrible, um, especially right now. <laughs> I think Florida would be a little bit better weather-wise than uh, out west here. I think yesterday we hit a high of like 45, 46 degrees. So even in Phoenix, Arizona, it's a little chilly. Yeah. Wow. Like, that we, is kind we of hit 30, We hit 32 degrees last night. Like that's that's freezing. Like we might have to cover the pipes in another couple of degrees. Yeah, because you guys are – I'm sure you're not – the infrastructure is not prepared for sub-freezing temperatures there. They aren't in Houston. I know that. Yeah, we don't have to deal with it that frequently, thankfully. Yeah, right. Now, I was able to watch you – I was able to hang out with you and Frank a little more last year at Chacho, um, and I saw you there, obviously, this year. Last year, you guys had moments where you could breathe and take it easy. It wasn't too bad. But this year was pure inundation. I mean, it was literally a, a sea of humanity. Um, now, when you signed up with Canic, did you expect to be doing this much public relations stuff with them? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. No, SHOT Show and, Shot Show and NRA uh, and the major like U.S. conventions were always part of our plan. Um, because we want to get out there in front of the public and showcase our products and talk about it and, you know, answer questions that people might have. But yeah, SHOT Show this year was crazy. I must have done a thousand video interviews on new products, both for the SFX Rival S and our new MicroCompact, the MC 9mm. Yeah, I was talking to one of the Century Arms employees and you were like, hey guys, do you mind stepping over here so I can do a video? Right. Like, Whoa, he, he is a busy man. At, yeah, and you'd crazy. already done a couple for me, so. Yeah. But now the booth was good. Uh, we, I, we gave away uh, some pistols. Uh, we usually do a couple of giveaways each day. Um, so we actually gave away a couple of steel frame rivals, so. I had no idea you were doing that. Now I feel cheated. Oh, man. How did you not know we were doing pistol giveaways? Like you've been coming to the booth for years. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. You know, last year though, you guys, or I'll say uh, Century Arms, Canic, who, whichever name you want to use. And for those of you that don't know, by the way, Century Arms is the sole importer of Canic firearms into the United States. So Canic USA is is essentially Century Arms and Canic firearms together. And last year they had um, like a posting, a poster, a big thing saying, you know, on this day we're doing this and so-and-so will be here. Mm -hmm. um, but this year I didn't see anything like that. Like there was no advertising. We'll be doing this at 1 p.m. on Wednesday and Andre is right. going to be here to look mean on Thursday at noon, you know. Yeah, that's right. I don't think we had definitely no big banners posted of the schedule, uh, but people's schedules change and that's kind of hard to to keep track of. So to put a hard commitment out like that can be pretty demanding or taxing on some of these people. But we still had a lot of fun people there. Like Andre was there, who, if you don't know, is a, a UFC world champion, 
uh, we had Black Rambo there and some other social media type people who are very entertaining folks to watch. So we, we still have <laughs> some neat people for, stop by. For sure. And, and, and I was there. And just for the audience, for those people who weren't there and who have not been there, Canic has the same hiring practices that being on the super squad requires, which is height. Adam is 6'10". Patrick's at least your height. Uh, and then you, and then Andre's six, four, I think six, I five. Know. I try not to, I try not to look Andre in the eyes. I'm afraid he's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. I told you, uh, at the show, I, you know, when I shook his hand, I looked him in the eye and he was mean mugging me. I'm like, Whoa, this is <laughs> like, a like we're staring down for the UFC heavyweight championship of the world. I'm right. just saying hello. <laughs> no, Andre's awesome. Uh, he's funny. I, I, it's interesting, though, because I saw now Josh Barnett is another UFC heavyweight, former UFC heavyweight fighter. And I saw him last year walking around with uh, Taron Butler. Okay. So every now and then you run into somebody you see or you recognize from something else, which is interesting. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to walk around that much, but uh, Rob Pincus stopped by and say hi to say hi at the Canic booth. Um, Eric Rafael oh. stopped by several times. Uh, it looks my like friend John it... Go ahead. My friend John McLean um, always stops by to, to chat and have a good time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fun seeing people that either you only see at a couple of matches a year or you never see, you know, except for SHOT Show. Uh, it's fun to, to see everybody in one place. Yeah, I never saw Eric Grafell there, um, but there were a lot of people that I knew that were there that I never saw just again, the sea of humanity. Right. Um, it, but the picture you posted of Eric almost looked like he was trying to steal trade secrets over there from Canik. <laughs> Sending like <laughs> classified documents back to front. Yeah. Hey, I, I got my eyes on him right now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, Prairie fire rank. What did you think of that? I won $25,000. <laughs> I know. I know you did. <laughs> um, so Prairie Fire, uh, this was the first year that they that they did this event, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and Todd Jarrett actually reached out to me because he was responsible for doing a lot of the setup and the, you know, the, uh, the design or you know, working behind the scenes and also bringing in some top shooters from around the country. Uh, so Todd Jarrett reached out to me and he's like, hey, we got this thing going on. You should come out and check it out. So Todd convinced me, like, twisted my arm to come to Texas to shoot this Prairie Fire thing, um, which turned out to be a really cool event. Um, it was a, a, supposed to be a one-day match. Um, for those of you that don't know what the Course of Fire was, it's essentially a bullseye target. Let me be right back. Get the target for you guys to check out. While he's Why getting that... Go back and watch a video I did with Lanny Barnes and explains all of this same thing. So they have this bullseye style target. So Prairie Fire rank target um, set up at 15 yards and they have four courses of fire. The first two are this target and it's group shooting. Round one is freestyle. So you have 60 seconds to shoot the best group you can for with five shots. And then the second portion of that string one or round one is a 
I think a 10 second it was, time limit to shoot another five rounds at another target. And then the combinations, the combined score of those two targets would then qualify you for round two. And if you made it to round two, which only I think 64 people did, um, it was a strong hand, weak hand around a barricade, but very similar. I think it was 15 seconds, um, strong hand, 15 seconds, weak hand around this barricade. And then your score total from round one and round two, they added them up and you went to round three, which is where stuff got fun. That was a man on man shoot off, uh, a <laughs> bunch of steel knockdown plates of so plate racks, poppers, plates, and then crossing poppers to determine the winner. So after round two, everything was a man-on-man style format. So a lot of really good shooters, because of how it was set up, didn't even make it to round three. So people like me, to shoot to stand there and shoot one whole groups of 15 yards, it's something we can do, but it's not something we do very well or very much. <laughs> Right. So you'd have, you'd have, you know, there's me, uh, I barely made the cutoff, uh, for round three. Then you have people like Doug Keening and Bruce Payette and people that are like super accurate pistol shooters. They were going to make the final, uh, two rounds no matter what. But there are also people that, you know, don't shoot competitions at a, on a normal, on a regular basis or ever, um, that you've never heard of. And they're also coming out and making it to the finals. Uh, or round two and round four, or round three and round four. Um, and there were some really good USPSA-style shooters that didn't quite make the cutoff for round three into the shoot-offs. Uh, so round three was, you know, man-on-man plates, and then I think the top eight um, advanced to round four, which was a similar format with a man-on-man and crossing poppers at the end, except instead of a 15, 16-round course of fire, it was a... 40 round course of fire. So very elaborate, way more movement, lots of reloading. Um, and then first place was 50 grand, second place was 25,000, and third place was 10,000. So the prizes were nothing to shake a stick at. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, I had Lanny Barnes on and we did like a 20, 30 minute video about it right before it happened. And, um, I kind of feel like it could reshape the competition format in a way, um, especially if they do what they say they're going to do this year, which is 10 times bigger. Yeah, so the talk is that they want to do a million-dollar purse for the next event, um, which is scheduled to be sometime in 2023. I haven't heard dates or anything like that. Uh, but Prairie Fire just recently purchased a range in Nevada, uh, so there's a chance that that event will either be at their facility in Texas, where this last match was held, or in at their Nevada location. Yeah, I, I, that's the one person I did run into there was Lanny Barnes. And again, I mean, it's like everything else at SHOT Show. Every conversation is brief for the most part. Sure. And uh, it was brief. Um, and she's actually switched from what she was doing to working now with the group that bought front sight in Nevada. So mm-hmm. it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, if it, if it continues, it's going to draw a huge field of people back to competing. 
in sure. that match. Yeah, yep. I mean, and you'll and you'll see a lot of people that you've never heard of uh, kicking people's butts too. Um, so it's fun to see, like the I don't want to say the average guy, but like people outside the competitive shooting world going toe to toe with you know the JJ Ricazos and the Doug Keenings and the Jerry Micklicks. You know, it's an experience for them, and it's also just cool to watch. Absolutely. I'd like to see that thing streamed live. That would be a very interesting competition to watch. Yeah, they have cameras all over the place. So I know there's a bunch of footage out there. Uh, I don't know if it's been posted or much of it's been posted yet. Yeah, I've been looking um, and I haven't seen anything yet. I had a chat with uh, Crystal Dunn, who was there mm -hmm. interviewing. By chance, did she interview you while you were there? She did. Okay. Yeah, so I've been waiting for all of that stuff to come out. I haven't seen anything yet. Yeah, I saw one or two like snippets, uh, but now that I think about it, I haven't done a Prairie Fire video yet myself, and I've got video from the whole event. So I'm working through my 2022 Ooh. matches uh, that I have footage of, uh, which is pretty much all of them. So I just posted a Carry Optics Nationals and the Superstition 3-Gun on my YouTube, which is Nils Jonas in it, YouTube or whatever. Um, so check that out if you want to see a couple of my most recent matches. But I'm working through last year's video and posting as I can. I'll be looking. Uh, I'll be looking for that then. That'll be an interesting video to watch. So what? What are your plans then after Carry Optics Nationals? After CO, I'm gonna switch back to Irons uh, and run that until production nationals towards the end of the year. Um, fortunately, I don't have to do a lot of transitioning back and forth this year. Uh, Carry Optics Nationals is early, it's standalone, so I'll work on nothing but the optics for the most part until the end of June, and then I'll transition to my production gun or take my red dot off the gun and put the <laughs> iron sight plate back on. <laughs> <laughs> that that is very convenient that it's the exact same gun yeah <laughs> oh goodness so it is but it is uh production not going to be single stack or anything else it's production yep yeah um unless for some reason i want to defend my limited minor title uh but this year <laughs> uspsa has all the iron sight matches combined into one so you know l10 limited uh, revolver production, uh, single stack, they're all one match. So last year they had it broken out into a couple of different ones, which gave me the opportunity to win an extra nationals. Uh, this year I have to choose and I'll likely choose production. Now, Adam um, let it slip on a video. Well, he didn't let it slip. He, he came right out and said that... Uh, you know, they're looking at different calibers. And he mentioned specifically in the Lipsy's video, uh, 22 caliber. Now with them introducing the rival polymer, the rival S, and looks like delving more into the competition market, is it out of the realm of possibility that at some point down the road, after their factory's well-established, everything's moving well, that they might at some point expand into a different caliber for competition. 
It's possible. Um, I can tell you that in the center fire caliber world, nine millimeter is by far and away the most popular. So in order for us to financially justify making a major shift in caliber or adding a line, it needs to make financial sense. Um, and the question is whether or not we can find a caliber and find a platform that it makes sense with. 22 makes perfect sense. That'd be very popular to have like a, either a mid or a full size training pistol where nine millimeters, $300 a thousand for ammo. You can buy 500 rounds of 22 for 20 bucks. Right. Yeah. So it's a huge difference and you get the instant feedback from like a bullet going down range and hitting your target. Um, which you can simulate to some degree with laser training systems uh, in your house, but there's something nice about a projectile actually going downrange. I and agree. For much less money. This, now, so that brings up my the next part of this question, where obviously USPSA is looking to run limited optics for a, a year and see what happens. That is the one time if it became popular enough where I could see where Canik might be like, uh, you know, we could do a, a rival S40 with the same thing and then you could run it where it could be and, and keep the same mag size and dimension, magwell dimension. I almost feel you could almost make a steel frame gun that could run 40 or 9. You could, yeah. Um, so CZ has two frame sizes, right? They have a, a small frame and a, a large frame. The small frame is their nine millimeter. Their large frame is built around their 40 caliber. So like, CZ mags are the same outside diameter as a Canic magazine. You see how the side of the sidewall, the mag is flat. Yes. That means in order for us to efficiently stack 40 cal in this magazine, which is a larger outside diameter, we would need a thicker mag body. Mm. And to okay. fit a thicker magazine into a pistol designed around a small magazine, I don't see that being possible. So if we did a 40, I would expect we'd have to do a custom designed frame for the 40 caliber. So it's not as simple as put a 40 cal in this magazine, which you can do, but the round capacity will, will suffer. Right. So it's almost going to be a complete redesign anyway, then. If we did a 40, yeah, it would more than likely be a redesign frame. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. And two years ago when we talked, you had no desire to uh get into teaching at all it has that changed at all i mean i have done some some teaching over the years and i'll still do it on a case-by-case -case basis with with individuals for the most part uh, but my shooting schedule the last several years has just been and like it was two years ago has just been ridiculous um so as far as doing and marketing like public classes, it's probably still not something I'll do, uh, at least in the short term. But I don't know. Never say never. Okay. Mm, that That's a change from two years ago. 
All right. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a market for it. And, and I, I know that I have some useful information that people could use. Um, but it's really a, a schedule constraint issue that I run into. Um, so I'll have to pick and choose kind of when and where I would do something like that. And I, I always go back to this and, and I don't know that I'm ever phrasing it properly when I ask the question, but I feel like um, there is a market. I, I've been calling it stage breakdown, but I don't, I don't feel that that's the correct term. Um, I think I came up with the, I think I came up with an accurate term one day and then totally forgot what I had come up with. But I feel like there is a gap between the, the highest level shooters and everybody else when it comes to shooting a stage and determining the minutia of what is critical and what isn't. And I, and I think even when you look at a super squad, I think there is a difference between top and bottom there and how that is determined. Like even, even the stuff that I've heard you mention, like I was saying, the, the points versus speed, how to determine all of that, you know, and I'll even go one step further. Let me minimize this. Um, so you're just talking about a stage breakdown or a stage planning? It's, it's not even or? in a way, but it goes much deeper. Here we go. And this is where, so like the last video you posted talking about merging positions, taking a large step during the transition sure. at the bottom, you said merging and shooting positions slash shooting on the move is important but not if shooting speed or accuracy is impacted beyond what's acceptable for the situation. Mm -hmm. And that's, I feel like that's the part that a lot of people miss. Right. Like determining when is it appropriate to do this? When is it appropriate to do that? Whereas a lot of people just practice shooting on the move or, or, you know, getting into and out of a position certain ways, but how in the world do, and I know it comes with experience, number one, and competing at that high level. But that's the fine minutia I'm talking about where it's like, exactly at what time do I know this is better than this? And it doesn't come necessarily. You're not going to learn that during the match. You've got to know that before. Right. Get to the match and then recognize at the time, like, oh, this is it. That's the type of stuff I feel like there's a market for, but not a lot of people know that. Interesting. That's a good point. Um, I would argue that at a big match, especially for the super squad guys, at least for me, there are two stage plans. One is the stage plan that's the most technically efficient way to shoot the stage, right? Everything else aside, the most technically efficient, fastest, best way on paper to shoot the stage. And then there's the way that plays to your strengths and avoids your weaknesses. 
and that's a separate plan sometimes than the most technically efficient. Sometimes you suck it up because the cost outweighs or the benefit outweighs the cost. Like if something's a little awkward to reload from this position to this position, if it's way faster, you do it, right? A little discomfort, you know, you can deal with that if it gives you back half a second or a second, like that's a big difference. But if by shooting this target from 10 yards farther away, when you're going to see it later on, like, yes, maybe you, you know, add a transition or like there's some other factor, but your risk factor is mitigated by doing it this particular way. Depending on your skill capability, it might be better, even though it's not technically the most efficient stage plan. So I think there are two stage plans. One is the, like legitimately the best way, and then there's the best way for you. And you need to pick and choose which aspects of both plans to use or not. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I, Steve Anderson's probably said it better than I have, but I love that guy, by the way. He's awesome. Yeah, he is. Um, and you know, he, he had mentioned how he, I think he read a letter on one of his podcasts from one of his students and he said, the biggest thing I learned at your class, and it was one of those where he taught and then he stayed with them during a match and and worked with them, kind of like coached them. Mm -hmm. um, and the guy said, the biggest thing I learned was how to compete. And that's what, and that's what I mean. There's so much little fine minutia on how to actually compete and be competitive, even based on what your skill level is. Obviously there's drills and, and other things you can do to improve your skill and ability. But that doesn't mean that you can still be the best guy at the top of the match. That may not be the best shooter out there, but he understands the finer points of competing in a USPSA match more so than the guy who may or may not be quote unquote more gifted. You know what I mean? Right. I would argue that uh, at Carry Optics Nationals, I wasn't the best shooter, but I was the best competitor at that match last year. Um, I think the best shooter at Carry Optics Nationals in 2022 was Isaac Lockwood. Interesting. He's, He's definitely just... the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> so Isaac can do some things that I haven't been able to match yet. Like his draw, like my draw has gotten a lot better over the last couple of years. Like Isaac's draw is on another level. Um, Isaac's not afraid to shoot fast. Isaac can shoot fast and accurate. So I think from that standpoint, Isaac was the best shooter at the match. I'm just a better competitor. I've been doing it longer. Like I understand I don't have to win every stage at the match in order to be competitive where he's still figuring that out. And I think this year, Isaac will have a much better showing. So mm. I think that'll be fun to watch. I kind of feel the same way almost with um, – and I agree with that assessment. Uh, but I also think Brantley Merriam is going to be another one. He's got quickness, accuracy, confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's – the two of them are going to be very interesting to watch as years go on. Yeah. Another one to add to that list would be Tom Castro. Right? Yes. Yep. I mean, and, if you – But he's <laughs> also cheating. He's six foot nine. I mean well, – 
And he shoots a cannon. But yeah. And he shoots a cannon. There you go. <laughs> and then if we can get David Bradley back into USPSA, that would be another top competitor at nationals. So I feel like there is that, like you're saying, he still has to learn that. But that's where I'm saying I feel like there is a spot there that isn't being really taught by anybody and how to do that. But the number of people that could teach it is pretty small. It's a small group of people that understand that, you know, I'm sure right. Eric, Eric Grafell could, I'm sure, you know, Rob Latham could, I'm sure you could, there's or at least, you know, if people picked your brains, they could come up with, uh, this is what they're doing and this is how they're figuring right. it out. But if there's a small, that's just a small group of people. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It might be worth putting a curriculum, to, a curriculum, curriculum together for. <laughs> <I can't talk. laughs> it's it's shot show catching up with you. <laughs> I know, right? I've actually had a, a one good night's sleep since shot show. I'll have you know. Okay, <laughs> slowly but surely. That's right. And I won that IDPA match I shot the following Saturday after I drove home, by the way. Well, I, I would expect nothing less, actually. So I'm not surprised. I, I'm actually about to post an Instagram video of my uh, first load and make ready at that match, where it's just a complete disaster. <laughs> just trying to put bullets in the gun. <laughs> I was so out of it. <laughs> well, and... Here is the question that I did not ask you two years ago, but it's Jay Beal's favorite question. Okay. And that is, what does your make ready vi slash visualization look like? So when the RO says to Nils Jonasson, make ready, mm -hmm. what does that look like? What's running through your head and what are you doing? Uh, well, what's running through my head is as little as possible, uh, but that's not always realistic. Okay. Um, Sometimes it helps to, you know, figure out a way to, to ground yourself and calm yourself down if, if you're in a real stressful situation, and that's going to look different for everybody. But if I have to remind myself something while I'm making ready, um, which can be helpful, it'll be usually one of three things. I'm either reminding myself to grip the gun correctly, if that's something I've been slacking on for the match, like I'm like letting the gun kick me around and and do that, like either grip the gun or look at the targets, which in my brain means focus on the targets. Like don't do that transition, focus back and forth as if I'm, as if I'm shooting iron sights um, or, or something to do with the trigger press. But generally it's reminding myself to either look at the target or grip the gun correctly. So it's like picking, ever... one, picking one thing to focus on rather than letting the brain run wild and go all over the place. Like let it narrow down on something specific that's actually attainable in the moment that you can utilize rather than being all scattered. Do you ever run through your stage plan one last time while you're there making ready? Mm, sometimes. Sometimes if it's a complicated array or like a like technical shooting position, uh, yes. But generally, I'm not going to do your two-minute-long GM make-ready with all that crap. I mean, that's, that's not my style. So how long does your make-ready normally last? Um, well, 
I've had make readies take five seconds and I've also had, you know, two minute make ready. So it depends on the situation. Okay. Um, at carry optics nationals last year, they had it was stage one and it was a strong hand weekend only state. Well, freestyle strong hand. And the second string was freestyle weekend right. and the first string normal make ready, uh, go through like the foot placement one last time in my head and you know, remind myself to, you know, you know, my one specific thing, right? Which for one-handed shooting is just put the down the target, like just do everything right. Because there's so many things that can go wrong. Like a little bit extra time is time well spent on a low hit factor stage where anything outside of the center of the target is either a no shoot or a miss or, you know, multiple points down shooting minor, like it's a big deal. So my first make ready was about 20, 30 seconds. So a standard make ready. The second make ready for the second string was probably a minute and a half. And that's because I was, after the first string, I was like super excited, like just like crazy excited and pumped up on the stage. And it was a freestyle reload weekend course of fire after that. And I was like freaking out. I'm like, okay, just calm down a little bit, breathe a little bit, relax. Like you're not in any hurry to get this next train done. So that was a very long make ready for me. So mm. it really depends on the situation. Did you start in the same place for both strings or did you I did. start? Okay. I started at opposite ends. So. Oh, really? Okay. <clears throat> I did because, you know, we talk about strengths and, and, you know, play shooting to your strengths versus your right. weaknesses. I felt more comfortable going the opposite direction weekend than I did with when I was just shooting stronghand. So that's why I did it opposite. But if you want a good sound bite, uh, one that sounds really good is train your weakness, race your strength, which basically means if you suck at something, practice that, work on it like crazy, make it a strength. But in a competition, in a major match, race your strengths. What you're good at is what you want to utilize. And if you can avoid what you're weak at, try and avoid it. So train your weakness, race your strength. There we go. That'll be a, an isolation soundbite there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody else said it before me. But... That's okay. Well, that's what I've got, Nils. Is there anything else you want to add or any plugs, anything? Mm, no, I mean, Canic Firearms, I mean, check us out. If you've watched, tell you what, actually, for your viewers, if you've watched to this point in the podcast, I want to give you guys something. So check out. So I'm wearing the new Choose Your Rival t-shirt. Okay. How about we do a giveaway for your viewers? So okay. I will send them one of these t-shirts. I have a medium, a large, extra large, and double XL. So whatever size they, they need, I can send out. Um, but let's do a giveaway to one person that, you know, comments, I want a rival shirt or something like that. What do you say? Okay. All right. Is there, how are we going to select them? I don't know. Well, you figure something fancy out for some random draw. <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with that. Okay. 
All but, right. Uh, you, but you tell me who to ship a shirt to, and uh, I will I will get it in the mail. All right. I can do that. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Nils. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I will see you on the range. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm.